You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. I am so happy to be with you today. My director, Biscuit, and my assistant director, Ted E. Bear, are sitting in their respective director chairs, enthusiastically waiting for today's program. These are my two ragamuffin cats, and the reason I bring them up is they, they think they're directors, and I've had so much email about, okay, tell us about Biscuit and Teddy Bear. Well, they're brothers. They have a great relationship, of course, because they're on Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio and directing it. And they just hang out here every Wednesday morning in my office waiting for the program, and they get on their director chairs, and then we just go for it. So I've also had a lot of requests for photos of them. They are ginger-colored. They're honestly cute, but I'm not objective. And if you want to see my director and my assistant director, they have their own page on Facebook. So go to Biscuit and Teddy Bear at Facebook, and they reply to their fans, if you can believe it or not. So I'm going to change the subject from my director and assistant director to something way more important. With our booming economy, I was sitting here this morning with a cup of coffee, wondering if our bubble will last. It's just sort of a chronic concern for me. And I have many peers and patients and friends who are also concerned about just how long our economy can zoom along at such an unbelievable pace. And this phenomenon has me happy, but it also has me wary. In July of 2018, Fortune magazine reported that forecasters were expecting the announcement of a knockout GDP for the second quarter, and that is just what happened. Added to that prediction that came true, unemployment is is at a near historic low, and more and more workers are going back to the labor force. Who knows what will happen for the balance of 2019 Considering predictors, the housing market is usually a really good one. On January 7th of this year, the Washington Post reported that for 2019, real estate experts anticipate that the housing market will slow down but not stall, and they predicted that prices and mortgage rates will be moderating. One of the National Association of Realtors representatives said that there's an expectation that home sales will flatten and home prices will continue to increase, though at a slower pace. There's also concern about a housing shortage. I honestly don't know what to make of this, even though I have a background in real estate. So very interesting predictions that we all follow. And I, as I said, I don't know, if you're like me, I'd rather hear this type of information from a professional than from some unknown newspaper source. And guess who is with us today? 
a lending and real estate expert, Mr. Hunter Markward. And thank you so much for being our guest today. Is it okay if I call you Hunter? <laughs> I don't know what else you'd call me, so yes, that's that's perfect. Well, I could call you Mr. Markward. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but well, I prefer yeah. to call you Hunter. Oh, yeah, absolutely, please. <laughs> okay. So, Hunter, tell us a little bit about yourself so that our listeners will be familiar with you. Okay, so I am... Uh, I should say, Dr. Ann, when you say about myself, you want personal, business, both? Yeah, anything that you'd like to share. Okay, so uh, personally, I am uh, I'm very transparent, so I'll just give you the whole thing. I'm, I'm 44 years old. I, I live in uh, Danville, California. I have a wonderful wife, two, bo- two teenage boys now. Um, life is pretty good in in my mind it's great in their mind I'm, I'm probably a bit of a pain but um that's called good parenting <laughs> that's called yes yeah, exactly good parenting i'm not sure from a spousal perspective but you know we'll, we'll I'll, I'll let uh, i'll let my wife judge me on that one um and then is is it relates to business i've, I've been in the mortgage business for 15 years now um I work for a company called RPM Mortgage, which is headquartered out of Alamo. And uh, I know, you know, when you, I, I think you probably want to know how, how I got into this wonderful business. Um, yeah. And I'll tell you, I, I basically, out of college, I went, graduated from college in 97, sold phones door-to-door with Nextel Communications, which was an absolutely amazing uh, four-year run as far as getting some experience on uh, rejection and and just kind of plodding through and turned out to be uh, just some great learning lessons in my life on that one. And then I went into software because that's where you were supposed to go when you were done selling phones, and that uh, that was the big craze and kind of where my ego led me. And uh, I was working in Silicon Valley for a startup for five years. And that, too, was an amazing, I would say, relational experience with the people that I was working with. But it also, um, it also taught me exactly what I knew I did not want to do. So basically, at the age of 29, I was driving back from Mountain View um, to, at the time, Dublin, and I would say that I had a what I refer to as a junior midlife crisis. Hmm. And if you ever have seen the movie Traffic, I, I, I basically, I mean, thankfully I didn't have any uh, weapons, but, I mean, I basically went postal. And um, I started banging my <laughs> hands on the steering wheel and, and screaming foul language and wondering what the heck my where I was going with the rest of my life and came home and told my wife that I, I can't do this anymore, even though it was, quote-unquote, you know, a successful experience, I guess, financially. Um, and that led me into the mortgage business. Basically, my dad was in... Um, he's on the wholesale side of banking, which is a different subject, but he just had a lot of knowledge around it. And we talked about it, and I basically said, I just, I'm, I'm going to try something different. Um, and it ended up, it is, as much as I am a planner, that was just kind of a leap of faith. And, uh, you know, 15 years later, here I am. So that, that's, that's how I got into the lending business. Well, Hunter, I just want to remark about this because, I wish more people would do what you do. I have so many patients who come to me, and they've been in their jobs for 25 to 40 years, 
and they hate them, and going to work is a drudge. And they have had those moments where they think, oh, I should change careers, but they're just too paralyzed by fear. So hats off to you for being brave enough to express what was going on with you and having that good relationship with yourself about this isn't working for me, I need a change. Really kind of unique in this world, yeah. I bet a lot of our listeners have some idea what a lender does. I certainly do, having a real estate background. But would you explain to those of us who might be first buyers or actually first sellers after living in a home for many, many years and thinking, oh, gosh, I need to move, but I've forgotten the process. Would you explain to us exactly what a lender does? Sure. Um, you know, I mean, I, I shouldn't say obviously, but a, a lender lends money, right? So a, what my job is, there, there's, there's so many different, I, I think the number, and this is, not a, this is not an absolute, but it's like 23 different people touch a loan from start to finish when, when someone is applying for a mortgage. But the, me being the lender, uh, I am responsible for the relationship, basically, of finding independent clients like could be you could be anybody that is that wants to get a mortgage and a mortgage is a, is a loan against a, a is a loan on a property so the property is used as the collateral um, and the bank is lending based on someone's ability to qualify for a mortgage and that has certainly meant a lot of different things over the last uh, really, I mean, over the last, I'd say, 80 years, right? I mean, the, the, the mortgage business really started with FHA loans after the Great Depression to get home ownership reestablished again. I was actually listening to my 100-year-old grandma talking about her and my grandpa uh, applying for their first mortgage after the, the Great Depression, and they had an FHA loan, and she was talking about the whole, I mean, it was the same product as it is today, 3.5%. Mortgage insurance, so it was actually really strange to hear her uh, talk about that. But um, to uh, for, from a lending perspective, now the you know there's 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 a bunch of guidelines that determine whether or not someone can qualify for a loan, and that has to do with I would say there's four different boxes. There is a I'll just try to keep it at a high level as much as possible. There's a there's a there's a credit box, which is does someone have a history of making payments on time, do they not have a history of making payments on time, meaning do they have bad credit, or do they have no credit? And banks will lend really to people, they want to see a history. People say, well, how stupid it is that I have to have, um, you know, basically proof of debt, but what they're looking for is proof that you, if you have debt, what you would do with it. So there's a credit box, then there's a asset box, which is what does someone have for a down payment, uh, can they, you know, can they put down three percent, five percent, ten or twenty percent down? Uh, in addition to that, once they come up with a down payment, do they have any money left in retirement or stocks? Just in the worst case scenario, if they can know, if they, if they had to dip into savings to make a payment for some reason, do they have that ability? The third box is what's called the debt to income ratio box, which is when you're just taking someone's income. Um, well, actually, you're really taking their total monthly debt. And you're divided it, dividing it by their total monthly usable income, keyword being usable, um, and are those numbers okay with a bank? And then the fourth box is just what property type. Is someone buying a condominium, 
a single-family home, a duplex, a threeplex, a fourplex. All of those have different guidelines. So what we do is, is put all four of those boxes together and then determine what type of a loan and what type of a lender will want to lend on that specific client based on what's inside of those four boxes and place them, place them with that lending institution that's interested in having a relationship with them. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes total sense, and I have so many questions about it. So um, what does someone do, or what do you do, if someone doesn't have the best credit and they want to buy a house? Well, there's certainly there's loans for them. I mean, I, I'm personally of the belief that you know if you want to buy a home and you're willing to go through the effort, even if it requires some cleanup from previous events, then we want to help those people. And hopefully, that's how lenders in general think about a client. Um, if someone has bad credit, there are like an FHA loan. An FHA loan is 100% guaranteed by the U.S. government. They are less, what I would say, discriminatory against a client that has that has had credit blemishes in the past. So compared to a jumbo lender that would require someone to have great credit right now. So bottom line, to answer your question, if someone has bad credit, we would first say, is there a loan out there for them today that is acceptable to them and doesn't put them at risk? Um, of having that mortgage. If they don't have credit that's good enough to get a loan today, then we would put them, we would tell them what are some, we work with credit people that would say, you know, over the next, it could be, depending on the on the magnitude of what's wrong with their credit, it could be a three-month fix, it could be a six-month fix, it could be a year-long fix, um, but put them in a plan to... I'm going to have to interrupt you because we're coming up to a hard break, but I want to come back to this topic because it's very, very important. Listeners, we will be right back with Lender Extraordinaire in about one or two minutes. Forty-five years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend is Around Town Movers. Timothy and the guys recently moved me, and I am and was totally satisfied with a sometimes not-so-fun experience moving. Call Timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience. Around Town Movers for that local or cross-country move. Timothy, Around Town Movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's Around Town Movers. Call them.
Welcome back, listeners. We are here with Hunter Marquardt, and we are discussing relationships with lenders and what lending is all about. And, and when we left off, we were talking about what to do if you have bad, bad credit and you want to buy a house. So, Hunter, you were saying, like, you can get six months fixed and one year fixed. This is kind of a, a thing I'd never heard about because I've been out of real estate for a long while. Could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, uh, uh, basically, it's it's not it's not black and white. There's shades of gray on people's credit, and there's shades of gray on lenders that will lend to people based based on various credit profiles. And it's obviously indicative of the interest rate. The lower, you know, the better someone's credit is, the less perceived risk they are in making that payment, which drives down the interest rate. And the opposite is true, obviously, for someone that has a lot of credit blemishes that are most recent. So depending on what someone's, where I mean it's not one size fits all, we would review someone's credit and determine, depending on, you know, bankruptcies, foreclosures, um, those are quite frankly kind of big deals, um, especially foreclosures because it's the bank lending on something that someone has a proof of walking away from. So that's a, it's still absolutely available to them, but it's a much higher risk in the eyes of a, of a lender. But then there's things like, you know, someone missed a medical bill because they moved addresses, and as ridiculous as it is, it still drives their credit scores down. So depending on what someone's credit profile is, there are solutions, that there, there's ways that you can remedy that, um, and it takes time. And that time, that what I mean by, it's typically in as, I mean, it could be as, as little as 30 days, but it's, I would say, on average, it's going to be, three to six months out. So if someone's willing to go through a plan where we say, hey, if you do X, Y, and Z, let's touch base in 90 days and see where we're at. And quite frankly, it's kind of an accountability on both of our parts because we'll stay in contact with them, but they need to do the work to get their credit back into place. And if they do, then they're going to be in a position to buy at some point in the future. And if they don't, then it, you know, obviously we'll just continue to be the way it is. But you really work with folks to get them what they need. That sounds like a lot of work on your part, actually. Yeah, um, it's it's actually not that big of a deal, but I mean, it, but I agree. I mean, it's like it's better than to just say sorry. You, I mean, it's you talk about relationships. It's how you make people feel, and just because you have bad credit doesn't mean you're a bad person. And if you're willing to go through the work, then it's the the real work's on them. We're just advising them on what they would need to do to get the scores that they need. So. Now, I understand, and I could be way wrong, that 850 is like an excellent credit score and the highest one you can have. Is that right? That's correct, and I've never seen one, just FYI. <laughs> it's an aspiration for many of us, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what's the bottom line? Like, if you have like a 300, I don't even know if there is that, a 300 credit score, what's the bottom line that lenders will even look at you? So I would say the, the true credit scores range between 350 and 850. If you're under, there, there's always some niche lender that's trying to market for business that says that they'll do something that no one else on the planet will do. And quite frankly, they make it so hard to get the loan done that it's not worth doing it in the first place, in my opinion. But I'll just give you an example. FHA loans, which are 100% guaranteed by the government, they don't have a credit threshold, but 
the individual lenders that are responsible for doing the loans, they do. So I would say the absolute minimum in general would be a 500, but that's the absolute. Most, like 90% of lenders would require 620 and above. And when you deal with jumbo lenders, then it's more like 700 and above. There's some niche guy, There's some niche players that will do less, but by and large, jumbo loans are going to be 700 and above. Um, conventional loans, which are these, you hear Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, still loans that are going through those government-sponsored enterprises, those can be as low as 640. And then the pure government-sponsored products, uh, like an FHA and VA loan, are typically, you know, I would just say 600 and above. Although they'll go, they will go lower, but it's very, very specific. That's really interesting information because I had no idea. And uh, there was a period in my life when my credit wasn't as good as it could have been. And it was hard out there. This is years ago. It was really hard out there to get um, a loan at a reasonable rate that you could do. And I remember like in the 80s, because that's how old I am, when interest rates were like 23%, and we had to do what was called a wraparound loan, and then those became illegal. But... There's all kinds of different hurdles that people can um, have to face that they aren't even aware of. And I'm wondering, you also said there was a thing called an asset box. So we're going to move away from bad credit to the asset box. And is, are things like sterling silver or, or like, you know, the knife and fork and spoon kind of sterling silver, are those assets? Or tell us what assets look like. By and large, there's always going to be some niche sector that literally might represent five or, or, or even less of percent of the loans that are being done out there by some niche investor that's looking for a lender that's looking for a specific product. By and large, when we talk about assets, we're only talking about liquid assets that would be checking, savings, stock accounts. For, they'll take a portion of 401k. So most lenders will allow you to use Let's say that you had $100,000 in a 401k and we needed to show assets. Um, they might allow us to use 60 or 70% of the 401k. So, um, but it's, it's, when you're thinking about assets, think primarily liquid assets. Assets yes, that you could sell even if you didn't want to in a short period of time and you can determine the value on those assets today. Like you couldn't even, even people that just have gold. Well, gold you'd probably be able to use, but by and large, you got to be able to sell it and determine the value of it the same day. And you help people figure out what their assets are? Yeah, absolutely. To... I mean, we, okay. yeah, we, we, we always look at someone's overall. I mean, those four quadrants that I broke down for you, that's what my team and I are kind of thinking about behind the scenes. Where are these people? Where are the strengths and weaknesses on their scenario, on their situation? And then bring that to light with them so they have a full understanding of, of not just what a lot of times people think what they have is how it is in fact what they have, but how banks look at things can be very convoluted and strange, especially after the mortgage meltdown. And it's where people get super frustrated because they think they think their situation is one thing, and the bank, based on their guidelines and how they underwrite it, they look at it something completely different. Like you know, the the number one thing is a self-employed borrower, right? They they might think they make two hundred thousand dollars a year. But when you get their actual tax returns because of deductions and everything else and expenses that they're trying to take to not show full income, 
or I mean, they could be absolutely valid um, ex- expenses, but they're showing $100,000 of income, and they want a loan based on $200,000 of income, and they can't get it. So things like that. You just you have to help people understand how a bank looks at things versus how they're looking at things to, to, to quite frankly, calm some frustration. I mean, that's, that is where people get frustrated. Yeah, and I remember, I think it was in the late 80s, when the Shah of Iran fell and a lot of Iranian people immigrated to America. And I remember them coming into where I used to work wanting to buy a house with jewelry. And um, they couldn't. And so I guess things haven't changed. It has to be liquid. Correct. Yeah, yeah they, they, they don't all, not even liquid. They have to be documentable. Like one of the things that, I mean, occasionally we'll come across someone that is, we call it mattress money and like legitimate mattress money. You have to source all the funds. So you have some old school conservative people that might literally have 50000 bucks sitting in a safe and that money is not usable. They need to get that money into their account for two months at least, and then we can use it. it but it's not like if someone just showed up with $50,000 cash, we, we can't use it as it relates to a loan. Boy, okay, so that's yeah. that's a good guideline. <laughs> yeah. have to be able yeah. to prove where yeah. you got your money so you can't launder it, and it has to be there for at least two months. Right, you can't launder it, and you have to prove that it, you know, the primary objective there is to prove that it's not borrowed from someone else. Yes, so Aunt Tilly couldn't have flipped you $100,000 for your down payment right. under the, under she the can, rug. She can, she can gift it to you, she just can't loan it to you, because then a loan, a lender would look at that and say, you know, if you were putting, if the lender was lending you 80% and Aunt Edna was lending you the other Twenty percent, then that would consider a hundred percent financing. Where a bank is saying, no, 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 we want someone to have twenty percent equity in the game. So it could be a gift, which requires no repayment, but it can't be just. It can't be a loan. Okay. Now we have about a minute and a half before the next break, but I'm going to ask you about something that we might have to interrupt you and come back to uh, after the break. So here's the question: which debt to income ratio is usually just a killer in my history with real estate. Would you talk to us about debt-to-income ratio? Yeah, so as far as how you get it, a debt, like if you just, someone's total debt, so let's say your total monthly mortgage payments between your property, between your your principal and interest payment, they call it PITI, principal and interest payment, taxes and insurance. Let's say that number is $4,000 a month and your total monthly income is $10,000 a month, you divide those two numbers, it's obviously 40%. Banks would say, we'll lend that person money because their debt-to-income ratio is under 43%. Some lenders will now go to 50%, but by and large, let's just call it 43%. So that's what a debt-to-income ratio is. Now, if you pull their credit and you see that they also have a $1,000 car payment, then you would say they have a $4,000 total mortgage payment, they have a $1,000 car payment, you divide that by $10,000, and now you have a 50% debt-to-income ratio, and now you and don't I'm qualify. I'm going to have to interrupt you okay. because I want to come back to this. We are coming up on a break, listeners, and we, are, we will be right back with Hunter Marquard on Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend 
is around town movers. Timothy and the guys recently moved me, and I am and was totally satisfied with a sometimes not so fun experience moving. Call Timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience. Around town movers for that local or cross-country move. Timothy, around town movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's around town movers. Call them. Not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. We are talking about lending and home buying and how to find a good lender. And we have one here with us this morning, Hunter Marquardt. And Hunter, I want to ask you to come back to the topic of debt-to-income ratio because it's something that used to irritate my buyers a lot when they had too much debt. So anything else to add to what you just said? Well, I think people just have to understand, as frustrating as it is, the concept of a debt-to-income ratio is very simple, just in that you take a you take debt, you divide it by income, and that creates a debt-to-income ratio that fits inside of a box or not. The frustration and where the details come about is how a lender determines someone's income. It's easy to determine someone's debt, but how someone, you know, for self-employed borrowers, they think their income is one thing. The lender looks at it as, as something else. Someone that's, you know, even if you're uh, in sales, right, you might have a, whatever, $100,000 base salary, and you might have a $50,000 commission structure, but, you know, the previous year you made 35000 in commissions. This year you made $50,000, so you want them to use fifty, but the lender is going to take 35 plus 50 and divide it over 24 months, which gives you a different number. So it's just it, people do get frustrated because what a lender, how lenders calculate things is very rarely, unless someone's just a straight W-2 base salaried person, it's rarely in alignment with what a borrower thinks that they make compared to how an underwriter, um, it's not even an underwriter, it's not an underwriter's fault, it's guidelines that an underwriter needs to follow. Um 
and that's where that's where things get tricky. Yeah, they do. So it's forty three percent is like the cutoff normally. Forty three percent. Yeah, I would say 43%. Like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac just took theirs up to 50%, which, you know, quite frankly, if someone's at a 50% debt-to-income ratio, you always – I tell all my clients, there's – even after the mortgage meltdown, there's there's what a lender will lend you and there's what's in your best interest, and those things aren't always in alignment with one another, in my opinion. If someone has 50% of their, their, inco- their, their income before taxes going towards their payments, that's pretty tight. So – I think you got to be careful, but yeah, it, it, it's it's been in the past. Like jumbo loans are forty three percent, but there's some room for uh, going higher. Would you tell our listeners what a jumbo loan is? Yeah, a jumbo loan in our market, uh, a jumbo loan is a loan that's above six seven hundred twenty six thousand five hundred dollars, and that number has changed throughout the years. It changed this year. It used to be above six seventy nine. Um, and the best way to think about it is Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, I don't know what the exact number is now, but they, they basically, post-mortgage meltdown, were responsible for lending 90% of the loans in the country. So you hear people have heard Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They securitize the loans, and those are called conventional uh, conforming loans, and those loans all fit into Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac guidelines and then are securitized and sold as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac products. The uh, jumbo loans are not guaranteed by the government. They are um, the, the credit requirements on them are tighter. The credit scores need to be higher. Typically, um, the reserve requirements need to be higher. And by by the way, that's also, if you look right now, a lot of the times jumbo loans, everyone thinks jumbo loans have higher interest rates. They actually right now potentially have lower interest rates for a couple reasons. One, um, you know, the, the banks want those type of borrowers because those type of borrowers typically have more money um, to put into the bank, but also the credit profile on those buyer borrowers is typically stronger than a conforming loan that's being sold through the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac channels. Now, Hunter, I wanted you to tell us how you differ from your competition because so many of us, including me, even with a real estate background, have some idea about how to get a good lender but are not exactly sure about what those qualifications might be. So how do you differ from your competition? Um, so I, I think from a mindset perspective, I just I believe, and my team and I talk about it every day, that our value has to be that our, our, our clients need to believe that they have a greater chance of home ownership with us in their lives than any other lender. So I think the value that we put on ourselves to our like with how useful we are to our clients is critically important. Um, I think if you look at it and say that you know let's assume that interest rates are a fairly commoditized product, so moving that to the side, then one makes us different. It's it's education. It's taking the time to understand someone's needs. It's having them understand a very confusing process um, and making it as smooth as we possibly can. And I think at the end of the day, when you know you were in real estate before, so you know 
the real estate community is very concerned about what lenders are doing what loans because the last thing in the world you want to do is get into a contract and find out that the lender didn't do their due diligence, which unfortunately happens all the time. They didn't do their due diligence. They didn't do a full pre-approval. They don't understand the file, or they're just incompetent. And, and again, it happens. Unfortunately, the barriers to entry for this business, it's higher than it's ever been, but it's not as high as it should be. So we we have a reputation locally um, for execution and for our clients having a, a great experience, and then that then kind of permeates throughout the real estate community, and people are, are more comfortable. You know, all of our clients, if you look at our – Yelp reviews, if you look at anything, it's, don't get me wrong, it's not like we're perfect. I mean, we screw up from time to time, but it's not very often. So our clients, yeah, nobody's perfect, but our our clients just feel more comfortable when they're done working with us. And, I mean, we we don't close late on loans. We get people into contract. The majority of our business is on the purchase side of things, um, and it's really just what I've built my business around. So our underwriters are all in-house. Everyone is local. Um, you know, and I think that's a big part of it. Just from a company, I feel like I'm talking too much, but there's like there's a back end and a front. The front end and the back end. The front end is my team and I. The back end is the operations of the overall company that you're working with. And those two things, those two groups, both have to be great in order to have a great client experience. If the front is broken, it doesn't matter what the back does, and if the back is broken, it doesn't matter what the front does. So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Now, you said something about local, but I suspect that we've outgrown local in the marketplace because I know friends of mine who are local real estate agents sell in all over California. Talk to me and our listeners about where do you land? Does it matter, or are you stuck in California? I'm personally stuck in California just because it's always been. I, I, quite frankly, with the amount of people leaving California, uh, oh. it is on my it is on my goal sheet to get licensed. In particular, what seems to be Oregon, Arizona, Nevada, and Colorado, because and, and Washington. That's where the majority of my clients are going. Um, but I I can lend anywhere. It's a it's the the. The key is is where are your where are the people that are responsible for helping me be successful? And granted, they don't need. I mean, I have a couple people on my team that are actually remote, but we're on video conference every day together. We're talking to each other. It's a question of whether or not, like underwriters, as an example, you know, there are underwriters that have the mindset of let's figure out how to make this work inside of the ethics that they're demanded of, and it, and there's there's other underwriters that are more like they get a file and their mindset is. Let's figure out where this person's lying to us, and that's not the right mindset to have. So, um, with when I say local, it's all it, it's local, and it's kind of your mindset as an employee of the company and, and team player versus you know you're just on your own island. So, but I, to your point, I mean, no offense to the other to the realtors, I think a good realtor really needs to be relatively local to understand the market and the local. The reputation that they have inside of that market determines offers getting accepted, especially when it's it's all situational. Our market is incredibly competitive right now, so if you have five or ten offers on a property, the whole package, the lender, the realtor, the client, their profile, what they've gone through to get approved with the loan, that matters when those people are sitting in a kitchen with a listing agent looking at offers determining which one to accept. Yes, 
I get that. Now, I have a friend who just bought a home, and she was telling me all about the angst she experienced getting a loan. So in a really remedial way, because there's a lot of first-time buyers that might be listening to us, tell us about the process of applying for a home loan. What does the usual buyer have to do? So very remedial. The process would be you put together an application, and that application has all of your income and your asset and your credit profile. You should be able to derive someone's income, their credit, and their assets based on that application. That, And then pull someone's credit. That's called a pre-qualification. So loan application, pull their credit. The assumption is on a pre-qualification that this is all, that the information is accurate and you're qualified for a loan. The next step is what's called a pre-approval, which is when you submit all of your personal financial documentation with that loan application. So tax returns and bank statements and W-2s and pay stubs, the lender is confirming that in in writing, basically, that all of that information is accurate, and then you are pre-approved. And then what we do, which is one step further, which typically only takes place once you go into contract, is we actually get it to our underwriters to be 100% sure that we're going to be able to execute on the loan. But the, So those are basically the three different processes. It's a loan application, putting together all your documentation, have the lender review all that documentation and confirm they can execute and then get to underwriting. Now, there's a pre-approval, and then there is there a, an approval pending finding a house? That's so what we go do, into yeah. Oh, okay, so you could go into an offer with a pre-approval or an approval, but the approval carries way more weight, correct? Correct, correct. Like, yeah, it, and that's... it depends on where you are in the country. If you're in the Midwest, like they do, they, they accept offers on pre-qualifications. If you're in our market, you're, you know, it's just it's much more competitive. So, to get someone through underwriting is incredibly helpful up front. It makes the seller we. I always tell my clients, we're, we're trying to make them as attractive as we can to the seller and to the listing agent. As much as we care about them, that's who we're, we're serving the people that are, that, are, that are accepting these offers, so we want to make them look as attractive as we can. Well, absolutely, especially, as you said, in a competitive market. Now, I've often wondered this because I think we all know that, that applying for a loan is really painful. <laughs> and I am curious, and we are coming up on a break, but I am curious, why does so much paperwork have to be filled out with a loan application? When I was in real estate in 1901, it did used to be that way. Yeah. Do you want me to do it after the break, or do you want me to start? No, we have about a minute and a half. Okay. So I would say... Post-mortgage meltdown, right? We were lending, before the the meltdown of seven and eight, we were lending, lenders were lending to too many people based on what I would say were horrible guidelines. If people, it wasn't the products, it was the products, but more than anything, it was the guidelines that helped create the meltdown. So you were lending to people without verifying income, without verifying assets that didn't have good credit, and then it's kind of like, okay, if you, and you're going to lend them 100%. If you're going to do that, then something it's bad is going to happen. At 100%, at okay. 100%, we're going to have to take a break. Listeners, we will be back in about two minutes with Hunter Marquardt, fabulous lender. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction and medical director of the Atlanta Healing Center. Please join me on Tuesday afternoons at 4 p.m. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. And speaking about website, we want to remind everybody to go to Tornado body dryer that's www.tornado body dryer i have one in my shower and it works fantastic i love it you take your shower you turn the body dryer on and no towel no mold no mildew just the warm air that dries you and dries your shower go to tornado body dryer and check it out we'll be back with dr ann right after this you're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, listeners, to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. We are here with phenomenal lender Hunter Marquardt, who is spending some time with us explaining lending, and this is a really important relationship that people have with their real estate agent and their lenders. I just want to add this for our listeners because you are being guided to make the largest investment you will probably ever make. You live in it. It's your nest. And if your experience turns out to be hell, it's not fun and you don't arrive in your new nest in a happy way. So, Hunter, back to this paperwork. It didn't used to be like like thousands of pieces of paper that you have to fill out, which is a very anxiety-evoking. So you were talking to us about that. Yeah, so I'll, I'll try to be brief on it. In, a couple things. One is we, we, we try to help people just – it's like – and it, Dr. Ann, if you, if, if you trust me on this, just know that I don't want to request all the information I'm asking for, but post-mortgage meltdown, 
we went from lending to anybody with a pulse to throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and now we are stuck in an environment because of government regulation, much of which was needed, where we have to detail every single piece of paper. And you know, just to give you an example, someone has a bank statement and it says 10 pages. On the first page it says 1 through 10, but 5 through 10 are blank. You still have to get 5 through 10 because the bank doesn't know that there isn't something on page 9. So that, that's why that stuff, it just is what it is. I hate to say it, you just have to deal with it because it's not going to change right now. Yeah, I, I feel like the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> yep. If our I listeners agree. know what that was. So my friend who was having all this problem with her purchase also told me that she had problems with the underwriter. And tell us what an underwriter does and what type of issues could come up. Well, an underwriter does, they, they review to confirm, they're validating all of the information, right? I'm in sales. I, I, th- I think salespeople sometimes have a deservedly bad reputation. Some have, should have a better one than, than the industry allows. But I'm supposed to make loans happen, right? So I'm optimistic trying to get everything into one tube. The underwriter is basically the police that looks at the loan to say, is all of this right for one, is all of this information correct? Two, is it lo- being looked at how the lender wants us to look at it? So where people get frustrated, it like an underwriter is kind of like an IRS auditor. They're confirming that everything is accurate. And sometimes an underwriter could, I mean, everyone's got different skill sets and people are good at their job and bad at their job. If you have a bad underwriter that doesn't understand the guidelines, um, that is going to cause frustration. My guess, Dr. Ann, is it was probably on the front end where the lender themselves, i.e. me in my position, didn't look at the information correctly. Then when it got to the underwriter, the underwriter had a different opinion, and that's what frustrated the client, which is something that happens all the time. So they're like the Sherlock Holmes of loan applications, Right. Yeah, they're the pol- they're the police. They're the ones that are confirming that everything is accurate and real, and makes sense per the guidelines that you're supposed to adhere to in looking at someone's financial situation compared to getting a loan. Okay, now here's the question, because I've had issues with underwriters in the past, and my real estate clients were really upset. Can you can people request a different underwriter? Are we or are we stuck with who we get? You're stuck with who you get. By and large, you're stuck with who you get because it's not. Yeah, it's just it's not a position that you would ever have. I mean, like me on my end, I could raise a flag internally to say, "Hey, look, this underwriter is flat out not looking at this correctly. I want a second opinion." It would go above them. It wouldn't switch to someone alongside them. So, and that, and by the way, that does happen. I mean, there's human error, but yeah, you can't. At, certainly for, at the borrower level, you can't just sit, because that's kind of like saying, okay, well, they, they didn't give me the answer I wanted, so I'll just go to door number two until I get the right answer, which was part of the mortgage meltdown in the first place, right? I would say I can't yeah. lend you this money because you don't have the right credit, and then the next guy who's got a different moral compass than me would say, I'll do that, and that was the problem. Yeah. Now, Hunter, would you talk to us about interest rates? Everybody's interested in interest rates, so I'll ask you, the question that probably everyone asks you, are interest rates going up or down? <laughs> What's uh, your yeah, 
Yeah, and I would be nuts to answer that question. Um, I, I, I think, I mean, if you look at interest, interest rates are still incredibly low. Are they at, at their all-time low right now? No, but they're still really good. And where it's hard to predict interest rates is they're determined. I mean, we even had we had a chief economist, or an, I should say an economist. I don't think it was a chief economist. A Fannie Mae come in and talk to us. And she wrote, she put down this chart in front of us and said, here's the last three years of interest rates. Here's what we we were Here's what we predicted, and we were all wrong, right? So the, the smartest people in the room are getting interest rates wrong. What I would say is, you know, interest rates are determined by, in general, by the way, um, with what's going on in the economy. And when things are going, when you hear things about job growth, when job growth is happening and things are going well, then typically interest rates are going to be going in the wrong direction, going up. And the stock market should be going up. When things are going wrong, like right now, as an example, interest rates dropped the last few days because of the concerns about um, all of the, the uh, tariffs with China. So all of a sudden, that's negative news, which helps interest rates. So, But literally, we've been going at it. I mean, six months ago, there was information that interest rates should be rising. Three months ago, there's information that interest rates should be stable. So uh, it's it's impossible to predict. Um, the general consensus right now is that interest rates should stay relatively flat throughout this year. Um, but, you know, I think the other thing, too, not to uh, – it is about people's – people want the lowest and best interest rate they can find, which I completely understand, as do I. But when people focus on it too much, it literally takes them away from buying an asset and a home that – probably will appreciate over time and is your home because they think interest rates are going to go lower. It's, it's kind of insane, quite frankly. So, I mean, I think everyone, we have a tendency to push people to focus on that single subject as though it, it dictates whether or not someone should buy a house or not. And, yes, it's important. Yes, I want the best interest rate I can find for myself as well as my clients. But it's, it's not, it shouldn't determine whether or not you buy a house or not unless it legitimately dictates your qualifying issue your qualifying ratios interesting now hunter from a lender's perspective what makes a great client for you so for me personally and i literally I, I have it written i mean i have what my ideal client looks like my ideal referral partner it's people that are interested in having a relationship with us it's people that want to sit down and understand the process it's people that um, assuming we're doing everything on our end, will trust us. It's people that are honest with us. Um, and I think, like, with what – it's people that qualify, quite frankly. But I, I, I think it, – it, but it's a really great question because I think when you understand, and this is with all relationships, when you understand what your ideal – my team and I call it our ideal client. When you understand what your ideal client looks like, you also understand what your ideal client doesn't look like when they come in the door. So people that just want – you know, someone sends me, and they have every right to do this, but someone sends me an email. They don't want to talk to me on the phone. They just say, Hunter, what's a 30-year fixed? I need a quote for, you know, 400, 500, 600, 700. I'm not interested in talking to you. That's not my client, right? They don't, I mean, I, first of all, I don't have any information that I actually need to give them accurate information. And two, they put no value on my services. So um, so the, the opposite would be my ideal client. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so the nightmare would be just calling you and saying, "Don't talk to me. Just give me the rate." Now, I bet, yeah, I, but but rent, lenders used to do that for me. I would say, if I was your real estate agent and we had a close working relationship, 
I would say, what's the interest rate, and I'll talk to you later. <laughs> and is that okay yeah. with you? Yeah. Well, yeah, if you're talking, I mean, if you're making an offer for one of our clients and you need to put an interest rate into a contract, absolutely. You know, but, but okay. for people that just want, for people that just want a rate quote, I, I mean, I'm more than happy to give someone a rate quote, but there has to be some level of communication or it's just, it's a total waste of time and it never, I just know from all the loans that I've done, it never ends up being a positive experience for the client or for me and life's too short for for a, like the stuff that you're talking about with frustrated borrowers and all of that stuff happens because of lack of communication. So if someone doesn't want to have any communication with us, then it's it's okay. It's just not our it's just not our client. Exactly. And you know, as I said earlier in the show, it's a really wonderful to have somebody representing you in the real estate arena who has good relationships with a lender. Because you really work closely with real estate agents, right? Yeah, a hundred. I mean, without question, I I need to be a positive reflection on referrals are scary, and I honestly I don't like giving many referrals because they never execute like I would execute for my clients. So mm-hmm. when we look at you know, if I look at my real estate partners, yeah, I mean, they're to me they're putting their livelihood in our hands, they're putting their reputation in our hands. And we need to be a positive reflection of them to the client. So it's now, critically heard, important. Yeah. We're coming up on the end of our show. I want you to give your phone number and tell our listeners where they can get a hold of you before we have to say goodbye for this morning. Okay. So uh, you can get a hold of me by calling 925-552-3892. And I'm going to just say, if you just Google Hunter Markward, you'll probably have a better chance of writing this down than, than getting it right on my email address. But my email address is hunter at rpm-mtg.com. Hunter, thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest. And listeners, remember, only you can make your world the way you want it to be. Until next week. Thanks, Dr. Ann. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.